Today we're looking at Hebrews, part of a series that we started several years ago called Learning to Love God's Word. We're spending one sermon on each book of the Bible and to get a sense of the heartbeat of why did our God give us this part of His Word. So, yes, we're looking at Hebrews, but also we're looking at a question. The question is, did you ever start something and just decide halfway through it's not worth it? It's time to quit? That kind of person asking that kind of question is why the book of Hebrews was written. The readers of this book, the name says it, they were Jewish believers who came to faith in Jesus, Jewish Christians, who had begun trusting Jesus 20 or 30 years ago. And by the time this letter is written, they are exhausted. The life of faith has become so difficult and draining, they are ready to give up. And trusting Jesus just doesn't seem worth it anymore. Why? We'll, we'll talk about that later. But at some point, every Christian's going to experience that. At some point, you're going to say, I started this thing, I'm not sure I want to keep doing it. I'm just about ready to give up. Hebrews chapter 12 speaks to that by giving us the, a picture of a race of athletes competing in a race. And it says, essentially, don't focus on how hard the race is, how tired you are, how ready you are to give up, how far away the finish line seems. Don't focus on those things. Fix your full attention on Jesus. He ran the same race, and he is for us, and he is with us. Let's hear that promise as Lauren reads for us from Hebrews chapter 12. Thanks be to God. Let's pray for God's help as we listen to his word today. Lord God, you wouldn't have to warn us against it, would you, if we weren't so good at it. We are good at regarding lightly your discipline. We are good at tuning out what you have to say to us. We are good at taking you less seriously than we ought and yet you love us, 
And so we pray today that we would receive your love as you speak to us through the scriptures, as you reveal to us more truth about your son. Some of us have believed that truth a long time ago, and we are weary. Some of us have just embraced that truth, and we are excited, and and the prospect of ever growing weary seems hard to imagine. Some of us don't know Jesus. We are still wondering what to make of him. Wherever we are today, Lord, would you reach us? Would you teach us? Would you show us more of Christ? Amen. $8,000. I don't know what you could do with $8,000. Most of us would accept it if someone handed it to us, right? $8,000. Nothing to sneeze at. It's a prize for winning. It's a prize for winning the Peachtree Road Race, world's largest 10K race, right? Um, it doesn't look as big during COVID, but uh, about 60,000 people run the Peachtree Road Race each year. For 59,998 of those people, that prize is just out of reach. One male winner and one female winner will take home the $8,000 first place. You know, but unless you can run 421 pace, four four minutes and 21 seconds a mile for 6.2 miles, you're not going to get it. That that was the uh, winning pace in 2019 for the men's category the women's category was uh, sub five yeah so run as fast as you can for 50 meters and then keep doing that for 6.2 miles and you got a shot at the eight thousand dollars so for you know 59,998 people the Peachtree Road Race is um, it's kind of an opportunity to have fun with friends, hear some good music, enjoy some treats at the end, wear that nice t-shirt, walk, jog, push a stroller, juggle, you know, dribble a basketball, whatever the fun things are that you do to have fun. Because, like, that prize is just so distant. Why don't you just take a less intense approach? Trusting Jesus is like that. Sometimes the good things that God promises us if we embrace his son and remain faithful to him, they seem like they're so far out of our reach. And the actual circumstances of following Jesus are so hard. Can you imagine the training you got to do to run under five minutes for one mile and then do that six times in a row, and add in a little bit of, you know, the Atlanta Track Club motto, heat, hills, and humidity, welcome to Atlanta. That's hard. The actual circumstances of following Jesus are so hard. The prize is so far out of our reach. Why don't we just, yeah, that less intense approach is starting to look kind of appealing. That's the challenge of the Christian life. The race really is hard. 
That's the image that we find here in Hebrews chapter 12, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So imagine kind of this, this ancient stadium, uh, longer than most stadiums today would be because they were built for hosting chariot races. But this is where you go to have a foot race too. And a great cloud of witnesses. So having just described all these people of faith from the Old Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, we're imagining these thousands of people gathered to watch this race. And we know that they've finished the race already. And, you know, as often happens in the Olympics, right, my, my event is over, but I'm going to stay and I'm going to watch my teammates compete. That's the image. And so we're called on, you know, to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, when you and I hear that word race, we think, oh, fast. Whenever there's a race, it means last one there is a rotten egg. You know, it means get there before everybody else, whether you're racing cars or whether you're racing horses or whether you're people racing one another. Race means fast. But the word here for race, well, it's where we get the English word for agony. The word here is agon. You would also use it to describe wrestling matches or hand-to-hand -hand combat on the field of battle. So when we're being told that being a Christian is like running a race, we're being told that it's something super difficult, that, that it requires intensity of focus, that it's a matter of life and death. Why choose that image for the Christian life? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the, the readers of this book, they're worn out, they're exhausted. Why? The, the most likely historical background for the book of Hebrews, we, we aren't certain who wrote it. There's an ancient Christian tradition that says the Apostle Paul wrote it. There's also an ancient Christian tradition that says we don't know who wrote it, <laughs> primarily because the book doesn't say who wrote it. And all of Paul's letters, he signs them and says, I, Paul, wrote this. Um, so this doesn't look like it was written by him. But whoever wrote it, writing to a group of people who are really familiar with the Old Testament, they've become followers of Jesus They've, they've left their synagogues to become Christians, Jewish Christians, somewhere in the Roman Empire, likely in the city of Rome itself. In A.D. 49, there was a, a disturbance in the city of Rome, and uh, an ancient historian named Suetonius tells us that this disturbance arose because of a man named Crestus. And because of this disturbance related to Crestus, all the Jews and all the Jewish Christians, because at this time the Roman Empire wasn't distinguishing the two groups, were forced to leave the city. Now what happens to your stuff when you're forced to leave the city? It's looted. And so earlier in, in Hebrews, you, 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 the, the writer says, you have patiently endured imprisonment, the confiscation of your property. You, you were faithful to Jesus even when that kind of persecution was happening. Now, it seems like um, 
the name Crestus, according to Suetonius. So a lot of historians think that's a reference to Christ. And that somehow the good news about Jesus is working its way through this town and, and it's um, creating some kind of uprising, maybe even some riots. The book of Acts records those in other ancient cities. And so the emperor Claudius just said, be gone, <laughs> get out of here. Hebrew, uh, Acts chapter 18 mentions Priscilla and Aquila as people who left the city of Rome because of that action by Claudius. And now the book of Hebrews is written, we, we know sometime before 70 AD when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, as much as this book talks about the imagery of temple and tabernacle worship, if that event had occurred when this was written, surely it would have been mentioned. So sometime before 70 AD, this book is written to people who are now undergoing another round of even more intense persecution. It fits the historical timeline perfectly because in A.D. 64, the city of Rome burned 14 districts. Only four of them survived. And Nero, well, word on the street, at least according to the historian Tacitus, who lived around the same time Hebrews was written, Tacitus says, word on the street was Nero commanded that the city be burned because he wanted to rebuild it and name it in his honor. And so now he needs a scapegoat to blame this on, or it's going to be pinned on him, and he chooses the Christian movement. By this time, the Roman Empire is distinguishing Judaism from Christianity. So the Jews aren't being persecuted now, only the Christians. And Tacitus describes how Nero had animals skinned so that the skins could be tied to Christians and they were fed to beasts in amphitheaters for entertainment or how he even would sometimes have them embalmed in chemicals and burned alive to light garden parties. Brutal persecution. And now, if you're a Jewish person who converted to Christianity and left your synagogue to become part of a local Christian congregation and Jews aren't being persecuted by Nero but Christians are how tempting it would be to say you know what if I keep publicly identifying with Jesus and people who love him I may be tortured and put to death but I could just go back to the synagogue and stay safe. I, I, maybe I could even go on believing in Jesus in my heart, but, you know, just kind of a less intense version of commitment to Jesus. Why run the race and try to win the prize when it's so grueling and difficult? and might lead to nothing but pain. Surely there's a, a way to quietly slip back into my previous way of life. Keep trusting Jesus just in a more private way.
When our son Patrick was in high school, he ran cross country, so we hung around a lot of running coaches for a few years. And uh, one of the things we heard a lot was focus on the process, focus on the process, focus on the process. So the coaches were trying to teach the athletes some process of getting ready to run and a process to go through during the race something bigger than any individual competition or race. Why? So that in the middle of the race, when it got so hard that you couldn't think straight anymore, you could fix your attention on something bigger than the race. Right? Focus on your form. You've been practicing for months and years even exactly how to get your stride right and, and what that foot should be doing on the ground while this foot is in the air. And just think about that. Think about something bigger than the race. Don't think about how tired you are. Don't think about how much it hurts. Don't think about how hard the race is or how big that hill is. Fix your attention on something bigger. Following Jesus is hard. That's the challenge. The, the focus of the race, though, is him. We're called to fix our full attention on Jesus while we're running the race. Verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on him, focusing our full attention on him. Verse 3, consider him. He endured from sinners an incredible hostility against himself. Consider him. Focus your attention on him. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Don't focus on sin. Right? Verse 1 says, Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. If I'm trying to get ready to run, then anything that wraps my body tight and keeps me from moving well, I want to get rid of it. And sin is being compared to that here. Now, in the book of Hebrews, sin has a couple of dimensions. One is the external pressure you're feeling to compromise your faith in Jesus. And two is the internal temptation you experience to give in to that pressure. Sin is both this external thing that's being done to us from the outside, and sin is this internal thing that's appealing to us from the inside, our own hearts. And we're just told here, like, don't focus your attention there. Focus your attention on Jesus. Now, you know, it may sound a little scandalous, but we've got to be historically accurate here. Races were run naked in the first century, right? If it's going to slow down your faithfulness to Jesus, just take it off. Get rid of it. I don't care how much you feel pressured. I, I, I don't care whether you feel like you have to give in. I don't care how many times you failed in the past. Your sin doesn't deserve your focus. Jesus does. Don't focus on shame. Verse 2 talks about that. 
Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. On the cross, Jesus didn't focus on the shame of the cross. He focused on the joy that was on the other side of crucifixion. Now, you and I might think shame, uh, think of shame only as um, kind of feeling bad about yourself, your, your self-image. Here, the word shame has to do with being rejected by other people. That's what's happening when you're crucified. Everybody is rejecting you. Publicly, in a political statement, the Roman Empire is saying you are outside all the boundaries of the human race. Jesus knows what shame and rejection and humiliation feel like. And he knows how to trust God for joy, even when that joy seems so distant and far away that it must be for someone else. That's the definition of faith according to the book of Hebrews. It's trusting God in such a confident way that you will act on his promises even when your circumstances say that those promises aren't true. That even when your circumstance is death on a cross, you're acting as though there is joy to be had and that God's promise of joy is true and that he won't abandon you in that moment. When everything in your world says, but he's already abandoned you, Jesus is the champion of that kind of faith. He deserves our full attention because he has done that for us. Don't focus your attention on your sin. Don't focus your attention on shame. Don't focus your attention on suffering. Focus your attention on Christ. If you focus your attention on how hard the race is, you, you will give up. There was a hill in our neighborhood in St. Louis. We lived um, kind of in some rolling hills, but on the, on the edge of the Missouri uh, Valley River Basin, which is perfectly flat. And the ridge that got you from here to there was this hill that was about, say, 200 feet and incredibly steep and so someone had spray painted at the bottom of the biggest hill in the whole area for the good of cyclists and runners they painted on the road small hill ahead <laughs> and about 30 yards up this small hill they painted don't look up <laughs> don't look up don't look at how big the hill is. If you look at how big the hill is, you will think, I'll never make it. If you look at how hard it is to be faithful to Jesus in a world that's constantly pressuring you from the outside and your heart wants to agree with it from the inside, you're constantly, constantly tempted to think, man, Jesus' light would be the way to go. Is there a less intense version of following Jesus is there a way to just kind of drift back into safe Christian mode? 
so that nobody really knows I belong to him and it doesn't really show up in the way that I live and therefore life will just be easier. If you focus on how hard it is, if you look at the hill, you'll just get overwhelmed. But what happens when you look at Jesus? The first thing you think is, I'm not alone. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. If I ever have to endure anything hard because I belong to Jesus, I'm not alone. He's been there too. So that you won't grow weary or faint hearted. If, if I ever feel like just giving up, like it's not worth it anymore, I'm not alone. He's been there too. Even if I struggle against sin, to the point of shedding blood, verse 4 says, I won't be alone. He's been there too. I'm not alone and I am loved. Have you forgotten the exhortation from Proverbs chapter 3 that addresses you as sons? The Lord disciplines the one he loves. When life is hard, it doesn't mean God has left you. He loves you. He is a father who loves you. He is a father who will not leave you in those hardest moments. If you focus on the hill, you'll get overwhelmed. If you focus on Jesus, you'll know I am loved.